2: And most importantly, the survivor
3: understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro, in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation.
2: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Today we're going to have a super fun podcast recording with Devin, Brittany, and Tracy Bentley Root, and we're going to be talking about so- psychosocial interventions and mental health and brain injury, and we're going to gear that towards the patients, the clinicians, and the care partners. So why don't Good we go morning. ahead? Good morning, thank you. Good morning, everyone.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Very excited to learn from Devin and Brittany.
2: Excellent, yes, I'm looking forward to it. Um, Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, Brittany and Devin.
0: Uh, I'm Brittany, Um, I'm a third year occupational therapy master's student And I am originally from Houston, Texas, which is actually where I am at right now.
4: (laughs) Nice. I'm Devin Jones. I'm also a third year master's student of OT at D'Uville. And I currently reside in Buffalo, New York. So that's where I am.
2: Okay. And I see you're wearing a sweater. Is it still cold up there?
4: Yes it is and it was it was really nice the other day and then just went back to raining and being gloomy so I'll send it was you some of well the <laughs> I'll send you some of the Florida heat. Oh my gosh, that's where you are?
2: Yeah, we're already in the 90s.
4: Oh, that must be so nice. No. <laughs> no? No. We're oh.
1: supposed to be in the 70s tomorrow up here. Oh, no, yeah. that's perfect. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah,
4: we're supposed to. I would like to. that. I just would like the sunshine. It's I'm I need that like vitamin D. It's so gloomy all the time. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Brittany and Devin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your fieldwork background and why you chose Noggins and Neurons podcast for your community practice project?
4: All right. I can start. Um So my first level 2 fieldwork was at a non-traditional site, Restoration Society in downtown Buffalo, which really works with people who are experiencing homelessness, chronic homelessness, and who also are dealing with mental illness. So it was a community setting. I did a lot of group work, a lot of listening, active listening, like just kind of being a support system for people who didn't have one. And it was very eye-opening to kind of capture the essence of it overall. And then my second field work was very much so the traditional way of like going into OT. It was at a skilled nursing facility up in North Tanawanda. And that was one that I did because I was scared of it. And I just didn't think I was going to like it or I was going to be good at it. I didn't know if I would be able to do like the fast paced. But I ended up really liking it. I think I thrived off of the structure and routine of like how my days were being set up for me. And I really enjoyed working one-on-one with patients. I think that's where I thrive is like being able to make a connection um, with people. So that was eye-opening in the sense that I gained a lot more confidence in something I didn't think I was going to be able to do.
2: Wow, excellent. Excellent.
4: That's awesome.
0: Uh, so I did, I actually also did a level one placement at Restoration Society. So we kind of have some similar experiences with that Devin. Um, uh, yeah. and then I did my first level two at Excelsior Orthopedics, which is a outpatient clinic in Buffalo. Uh, so we, d- I worked under a certified hand therapist, which was an awesome experience. He was very knowledgeable and i glad I got the opportunity to work under him, but I ended up really like, I really loved that setting. And then I did my level two at tier Memorial Herman. It was a inpatient acute rehab for acute subacute for, um, traumatic brain injuries. So there were traumatic brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. And I got to see both, but I mainly worked with traumatic brain injuries. So he saw a lot of, uh, strokes, um, A lot of brain surgeries. It was it was very very fast paced, and I learned a lot. So I would always recommend that someone go and get that kind of experience in a hospital like that, especially dealing with um, strokes like that. It was it was very occupational therapy. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Like we did a lot of ADL work and oh yeah, a lot of neuro work. So. I guess that's that was also why I was kind of drawn to this doing this podcast because I mean I got a lot of experiences with strokes and I thought it would be cool to kind of see this side of um, doing education.
4: Yeah, done. And I'm and like what you you definitely have a lot of experience. So that's kind. I'm on the opposite side, even Mm -hmm. though I was in a skilled nurse facility. I I don't know if it was just like my schedule with my um, supervisor, but I saw no stroke patients and I didn't have any of like those experiences. So knowing that like that's a major disease that we work with, like I was like, Mm -hmm. I should, I need, I would really like to feel confident in like the major area of OT that we're, we might be working with. So that's why I also chose Noggins and Neurons.
2: Excellent. Well, thanks for choosing Noggins and Neurons. And I can't wait to learn more about what you've found and what you've gotten ready to share with us and um shall we jump in yeah sure tracy, so i'm did, sure we i'm sorry Devin. Oh, yeah. tracy no, did, you, did you want to introduce yourself i don't think you've introduced yourself yet have you my
1: name's tracy i'm an occupational <laughs> therapy professor at the new university i've had Brittany and devon in multiple classes now. So it's really nice Woo-hoo. to see their maturation over several years and getting ready to um celebrate with them come May at White Coat Research Night and uh, graduation. So it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and experience. And I'm quite sad because they're not a part of my research group. So I have actually not had a lot of an, an engagement interaction with Brittany and Devin this past current semester so I'm excited to be involved in this podcast I would suggest maybe can we just give a quick little maybe an overview
4: yeah of the topics
1: today that sounds great
4: so we're going to I know this is like a podcast that talks about stroke but uh, we will just overall go back over what a stroke is and kind of give a couple of statistics about what we found in our research, about who's affected and what they tend to experience. Um, so who's affected and how they're affected, what kind of factors end up being barriers or supports for their recovery. And then kind of talk about what kind of interventions we found that might help, like psychosocial interventions that might help with the recovery process overall. And I think the results and the findings are quite interesting to say the least. Mm -hmm. And then we'll sum it up with some key takeaways. Sounds fantastic. Who wants to start a little bit on what is stroke? I'll start off. So from, I'm taking this directly from like all the articles that all said the same thing, which was that stroke is a vascular disease That causes a loss of brain function, or it's a dysfunction in the area of the lesion. So where the brain cells have died due to the insufficient blood supply, resulting from an obstruction or rupture in the brain blood vessels. And even if they receive the right treatment at the right time, which is kind of what we just did in our IPE experience, like (laughs) stroke protocol, that's like really fast acting, a huge interdisciplinary team. Even if you catch it right away, the stats were 70 to 80% of survivors experience post-stroke disability in some capacity, which unfortunately is a very high number.
2: I was <laughs> going to say that that's a really high percentage.
1: Yeah. And for our audience, IPE, Interprofessional Education, it's a simulation center that we have on campus where all members of our School of Health Professions, as well as representatives from the School of Pharmacy and the School of Nursing, participate in simulations. And the scenario which Devin speaks of is a following someone through the course of multiple sessions and situations and events that occur in their life and how that individual would interact and how the, the professionals interact. So it's definitely an interprofessional focus the course of a gentleman and his wife's experience through healthcare just to give you guys the idea of what an ipe is
0: i think we also touch a little bit on mild strokes and how sometimes they're they're not as you can't really see as much physically going on with them but um they have a very high psychosocial impact still i think one reason why they might be slipping through the cracks which is what I've read from the articles I gathered is lack of awareness for mental health effects uh, for persons who've experienced a mild stroke. There was a statistic that I had found um, about post-stroke depression and post-stroke anxiety. I think we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but some of the outcomes, I think uh, estimated ranges from 29 to 40% of stroke patients experience post-stroke depression. I think we'll touch on that a little bit later, but I thought that would be an interesting statistic to kind of start off with.
4: Yeah. And just to like keep in mind that like all of, our, all of our articles, except for like two, are pretty recent from 2018 and up. So I was still kind of surprised to hear that there's still a lack of awareness there. For like the mental health aspect, I mean, we'll we'll go into all that with why we think that's happening. But I was, I don't know, I for some reason I was still kind of surprised by that.
2: Yeah, I, I feel like unfortunately that's a a trend in healthcare across many different illnesses or injuries that mental health is takes the second place sometimes instead of being treated at the same time with the same attention or, um, I can't think of the word, sorry, I'm thinking German now. (laughs) (laughs) With the same kind of uh, care or urgency, that's the word I'm looking for, as the primary diagnosis. So yes, Um, unfortunately, we see that a lot in healthcare, but thanks to new professionals like you, and hopefully there will be a change in the near future hopefully we can create that shift because it's just as important
0: exactly from my and from my experiences um working in a neurological facility a lot of my patients would have issues with participation because of the effects of like they were depressed you know obviously there's changes in roles. You just had a major medical issue happen to you. There's going to be a lot of changes. You're thinking about a lot, basically, and that can affect how much they participate in therapy. So I think that's a really big factor that a lot of clinicians got to be kind of aware of, of why participation rates may be a little bit lower in one patient. That could be a factor that people need to be aware of.
2: I can't wait to hear if you guys maybe have some numbers on male versus female, because in the clinic, I definitely see that males get hit harder with depression than females, at least from what you can tell in participation. You know, once, once a male loses their role, of being a provider, of being a full-time working father, for example, um, a lot changes versus I feel like females either adjust a little bit better or hide it better.
0: I think so, one of the risk factors that I had actually found for, for people developing post-stroke depressive symptoms or post-stroke depression is that one of the risk factors is being female, actually.
2: Oh, see, that is so interesting.
0: And I thought that was really interesting when I read that. I was yeah, because like, I don't I don't know if it went too in depth into in this article. It was a systematic review, but it that had it listed as one of the risk factors, um, as well as smoking, mild cognitive apparent impairment, pain therapy enrollment, and social support and community participation. But the being female one had stuck stuck out to me so i was curious that that is super
4: interesting yeah well and we're just about there so well let's get into that because it i don't know if we aside from britney's like a statistic that she found i don't know if we have any statistics specifically on male or female but because of what they experienced some of the like um the results of what they experience, I think definitely tie in. Like maybe there's no research on it, but this seems to be like a little, maybe a theory going on Mm -hmm. about that. But so stroke usually occurs in older adults. However, some of the studies we looked at have found the incidence of stroke in individuals in their thirties and forties has started to increase. However, regardless of age, individuals who have suffered from a stroke, face a variety of challenges older adults who suffer a stroke may have these challenges fall on them or their caregivers however individuals who are experiencing stroke in their 30s and 40s it might be a little bit harder or different in the sense that like they might still have the responsibilities as as you said doro like they're the head of the household they may carry these burdens alone depending on like their relationships the their family and Other factors. So, some of the burdens could be, I mean, number one, like financial burden. That's a lot to unpack, but yeah, just the cost of everything, cost of equipment to be sent home safely, cost of care if maybe the partner or maybe the person themselves is no longer working, a lot there. Inability to perform their normal activities and occupations, which can affect that individual and their family. I think that's safe to say that any of us, like if we can't participate in the things we love and the things we're passionate about, that stinks. And mentally we're affected by it. So,
2: Or even the things that we have to do, like as right, simple as, yeah. you know, having to ask someone to help you go to the restroom. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're in your 30s or even right. younger, now all of a sudden you need somebody to help you go to the restroom. That's a big adjustment.
4: And mm-hmm. in, and with my experience with working at the skilled nursing facility, I think I only saw two people who were younger, um, compared to like the majority that I were I was seeing. But what I was seeing is that like when for the people I was helping that were older, it was just. I guess you could say easier to laugh about it in hindsight that somebody might have to be caring for you because it's just easy to be like, well, I'm old. Like this is just what happens. But for those who I was helping that were like younger, maybe 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe it was, it was embarrassing. It was, you were seeing more of those behaviors because they're not used to that. Like yesterday they were doing all this stuff by themselves and today they need help going to the bathroom they can't shower unsupervised and i think that's hard when it hits you out of the blue as for maybe an older adult who's kind of an experiencing the slow decline over time absolutely
0: and think about how much anxiety can come from worrying about what you're going to do next what your role is going to look like next that's a big characterization of anxiety is that worry of like right. what's going to happen like there's so much so much that you're unsure of
4: yeah. and that can really contribute to that post-stroke also post-stroke anxiety which is why the next point doesn't surprise me on mm-hmm. this list is mental and the the mental and emotional aspect individuals who struggle with depression anxiety psychological distress so like the physical embarrassment and the most the emotional helplessness yeah i'm i'm not surprised by that one it's definitely
0: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah i feel like
0: sorry
4: no go ahead go ahead i want
2: to add grief to that that's something we see a lot in the stages Mm -hmm. of grief how clients go through the different stages of grief and just ignore it then make fun of it you know they become angry at certain times so a lot of times it, it's not always in the same order but a lot of times you can observe those stages of grief as they progress through their recovery
4: grief is a good one to mention on we i want to talk about that and then we can also come back to that but i um one of the main things that have to do with the intervention part was self-efficacy how can we improve somebody's self-efficacy and I think grief has a lot to do with that when you lose all of these things that made you you and and just like that and then how grief is not linear it's a cyclical thing and you bounce from stages being able to improve somebody's belief in themselves that they can get better in their recovery it must be so challenging, and I say that because I've never experienced working with someone who's had a stroke. But th- when you when you know those things, it's hard to figure out like why it weren't, that's not already done. Hard to figure out from an OT perspective. We know why it's not happening, but still, you just wonder like, man, like if these things were implemented, I wonder how our patients would be affected and a, a bigger impact of, in a positive way.
0: I think adding to that also is a lot of people feel like maybe their depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms aren't normal. And I think it's important because a lot of times people in the hospital that I worked with would compare themselves to other patients. And I think they, they do a lot of comparison whenever they're kind of in that facility together. But I think it's important to note that those symptoms of anxiety and sadness like that that's normal to go through like that's like you're going through a big change in your life and everything's not going to be right overnight. You know, a lot of this stuff takes time and I think some people might get frustrated in their recovery. I think a lot of times people get frustrated in their recovery because they're like they kind of compare themselves to others and like, oh, I should be there. Um, Oh, I should be so much further. Oh, why am I feeling like this? This is not normal. I think that also contributes to that anxiety and depression even further. So I think that's also why it's important to kind of educate our clients on the mental health aspect is that this is, this can be normal for you. Like you're going through a big change in your life. Like this is, this is something that might happen and this is how we're going to deal with it. So I think that also like the clinicians being aware, not only being aware, but also educating and helping our patients be aware of it, I think will affect the outcomes greatly. I think we'll also touch on that for the interventions and the um, results later also, but I thought that was really. Yeah, excellent. And yeah, I think this is an educating
1: excellent... the, the care, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is an excellent conversation in regards to reestablishing hope with someone who has gone through such a catastrophic event in their lives. So it's really uh, comes down to, as you were saying, which is I think what you were going for, Doro, is ensuring that that education is occurring. And because of those depressive symptoms, they're not as engaged and that's going to affect their outcomes. So if they can understand that it is what occurs with the normal recovery from a neurologic event, that that is something to really keep in mind to almost empower an individual that this is to be expected, and this is what we should do about it. So again, reestablish that hope and and ensure that client-centered approach. So it always comes down to that individual again, making sure that they have established what it is that they find meaningful for them, and that we we keep that as the center. Like, what role do they want to get back to? So again, reestablish hope that there will be, after the inpatient rehab stay, the outpatient stay, there will be life.
4: It's such an
2: excellent conversation. I love it.
4: What other things do we have on the list here we found? So social isolation was a big one. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you're being treated at the hospital and then, you know, move to a skilled nursing facility or something like that, social isolation is big for sure. That was a huge factor for some of um, the patients I worked with. You're not comfortable. You're not in your own space. And I, I mean, I can't even get that way now and I'm still so young and I can't imagine like somebody who's that's ingrained in them with like being in their space, going through their normal routine. And then on top of that, not being able to help themselves really in any way the environment is a huge thing and it feels at the end of the day isolated because you're not around anything, you know, and your routine is entirely different. Yeah.
1: And it's also not your routine any longer.
4: Right. You're on, you're... you're on somebody else's routine. Like some, somebody else is bringing you meds and you're just being told to take them. You're getting, you're getting, I mean, if you're being woken up, normally you wake yourself up but at this point somebody's knocking on your door waking you up to getting blood work in the middle of the night coming in three and four times yeah I mean that would make me mad and upset so I can I can see why it's it upsets our patients we have oh you Brittany you had a good one here living up to the expectations as far as recovery I kind of think that goes along with what you said about our patients compare themselves to each other they mm-hmm. think they should be somewhere when they're not there yet and if they don't internally if they feel like they're not hitting certain milestones it, they start to decline they you know the anxiety the depression comes back in and it you maybe you see a plateau or maybe I don't know maybe you see a decline mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I would have like, my patients would make comments to
0: me and be like, Oh, look at them though. Like they're up there walking like that. Like I'm not there yet. I said, well, they had something different. Like they had a completely different thing happen to them. So, and I would have to tell them, I was like, don't compare yourself. They had this, their situation is completely different. Focus on you and how your recovery is going. And then I would kind of reassure them and be like, you are doing great for, for what happened. Like, you're doing great. You just got to keep working at it and nothing's going to happen overnight. I think I definitely had to reassure a lot of people is it's not going to go back to the way it was overnight.
2: And the same for care partners. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times, even if the client or the patient doesn't compare themselves to others, they try to live up to their loved one's expectations. And a lot of times the care partner or loved one does not have that, um, education on stroke progression or stroke or brain injury recovery and and it's in that thought of you know you're in the hospital you're gonna get better and tomorrow's a new day but a lot of people just don't understand the time it takes for the brain to recover so I've seen a lot that clients try to live up to the expectations of a loved one and a caregiver which then causes major um, rift in the Within the family unit, Mm -hmm. because they can't live up to it. They've lost their role, which puts them further into depression.
4: Yeah. So, and you brought up caregivers and that's kind of our next. So that first bit was what we were mentioning was kind of about the individual experiencing the stroke. So caregivers, the burden that they experience, some are similar in the sense of like the financial burden. If you're as the partner now, you may be the sole provider. And that might even come with like, if you have to, I experienced a couple people and that I worked with applying for disability. And if you don't even know how that system works or don't know how to do the paperwork, I just think those are other factors that, you know, may seem so minuscule, but that adds to the anxiety and depression of the caregiver of, okay, now I don't know how this works. I got to figure out all this paperwork because I can't provide on my own. Not knowing how that system works, and if we're not as OTs, if we're not able to bill for those things and call that treatment of our patient and their family, is that being talked about, or is it us having to tell them as healthcare providers, "Oh, yeah, you just have to go to some site and apply for this, be on your way"? When that that I think that would also be super helpful if we could. Again, I don't want to go on my tangent because I could go on a soap opera about this, but. If we were able to bill for those things and it that counted as like our minutes that where everyone is so adamant that we have, that would be super beneficial. If you could sit down and show them the website and apply with them, that would help the caregiver as well as the individual because now with my fiance, I'm like, if my fiance is stressed, I am stressed. So, and vice versa. So if, if, if I knew somebody was going to help help her like fill that stuff out while I'm sitting laid up in a bed, a hospital bed, not able to provide, and Doro, especially how you said as the, maybe the male, like the man of the house that I think that would, that's one huge thing that we could do is like that be able to help in those what seem like nothing, but are, those are huge things.
1: From a health maintenance, health management perspective. I definitely, I'm, I agree. Because if we're looking about outcomes and if we're trying to be most judicious with our healthcare funds, we really need to change how we approach our care. And if it is ensuring that individuals can access services and that they're aware of what's out there, they will be more efficient consumers of the services that are available.
0: I think well that within also- our scope. Oh yeah. yeah. I think that also brings us into our, our like more holistic care. Like we as occupational therapists, we are pride ourselves on holistic care. And I think including that would really round it out as far as the caring for the whole person. So I think that's a really good point, Devin. Mm-hmm. And then giving them agency. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: that individual is then participating in their care at that level. So they can no longer physically do, but they can be participating in that level and then reducing the caregiver burden that is on their loved ones, which is really where some of what we're discussing is coming from. That change in role, their inability to do what they did before, and oftentimes it's that providing care for other people that they're no longer able to do.
4: And going off of what you said, Brittany, is like that's our holistic care. And I, again, I'm not, don't want a tangent, but I'm like, it's, that is what sets us apart. That is our holistic perspective. That's our, that is our core as OTs. And I don't like feeling like when people ask me, what's the difference between OT and PT? Like you're working on the same things. And I'm like, well, my legs are being cut out from under me. Cause there's a whole world of things that I could be working on, but can't bill for, I'm not allowed to. And at the end of the day, if it affects you as the practitioner getting your minutes in or what have you, or if you, you know, your 10 patients are on your schedule and you don't have time, you're being expected to see these people We're we're missing a whole world of what we do as OTs. And I'm like, if we could do that, I just feel like it'd be so much easier for me to be like, yeah, this is what sets me apart. This is what I do because this is what I do. And this is what I focus on that is, has nothing to do with the physical. But in the long run is gonna help the physical parts. And then speaking of physical caregivers, especially if the care if the um individual who has experienced a stroke is older, if their partner is not physically able to help, is not physically able to lift or you know, help them get to the bathroom when they're home. I think that runs into a lot of issues of then like, okay, well, then one that how are you going to financially provide care? Who are you going to pay to come in and care for your loved ones? And if you can't do it yourself, you you feel inadequate. You feel lesser than you feel like you can't provide for the ones you love. So now what? Again, it's just another, we're reiterating the same thing. But again, all these different factors lead to the same result of not good recovery or delayed improvements in their recovery.
1: Previous podcasts we've discussed this about how you it's so crucial and when we're talking about education knowing what's available where you are providing your care and then advocating if there isn't the necessary next step to provide that that support for the individuals. So really it comes down to making sure what is available and again identifying and educating clients and their loved ones on what would be necessary. And that's again, patient education. So that would be available. So putting it under self care, obviously, patient education for self care. Mm-hmm.
0: I think an interesting statistic as far as caregiver mental health is that two thirds of caregivers experience depressive symptoms or anxiety. I thought that was a very interesting statistic because it was so high, but you really are having, I mean, the patient isn't the only one who's experiencing a role change either. The caregiver is also experiencing a big shift in role change. So Mm
1: -hmm. many many occupations are now Mm co-occupations. So as we were saying before, the individual activities such as toileting are now a, you know, a co-occupation, it requires two to do. And that obviously will affect the dynamic of the caregiver and the recipient of that care.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Brittany, I and cut Br- you off. I'm sorry.
0: Oh,
4: you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. I was done. You didn't cut me off. And Brittany, what you were saying about, okay, so two thirds of caregivers and one third of stroke survivors experiencing oppressive symptoms What do we mean when we are talking about depressive symptoms or depression? It could be symptoms such as low mood, changes in appetite, changes in their concentration, decreased energy, changes in sleep, which we don't even have to go into how important sleep is. Mm -hmm. Those just everything that is encompassed in depression from the research seems to have a huge overall impact on just how someone is functioning day to day.
0: I know that anxiety is really characterized by that worry. Um, I think that's one of the major characterizations of that anxiety is worry of what's going to come next, which, again, like I stated previously, is a very big thing in in patients who's who've had a big role change and a big medical incident happen to them. But one thing is that more frequently like the depressive symptoms so post-stroke depression more frequently occurs in the acute stages of stroke and remits within the first year but it can also occur in late chronic stages so these depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms can happen on any continuum of uh, the stroke care or the stroke rehabilitation so you're at
4: risk basically you're at risk no matter what stage you're in of, mm-hmm. of the stroke recovery or the process oh which i feel like it's to be
2: expected yeah you know i mean i i would be surprised if if the statistics were any lower you know i feel like two-thirds i would expect almost 100 percent goes through some sort of depression anxiety period of adjustment with some sort of mental health issues mm-hmm. or symptoms
4: yeah, I think one. Go no, go ahead. Okay. Okay, were, we're talking about how anxiety is that worry. Now, I didn't. Again, I didn't experience anyone who or help anyone with a stroke, but I experienced and worked with people who had a lot of anxiety as older adults, and just the fact that I would, I was so conflicted as a young student going in there and trying to get my feet under me. Telling people who want to just talk to me, who just want to sit down and talk to me for our forty-five minutes, and I have to, because I have ten other people to see. I have to be be like, oh, I mean, we have to do exercises, so I we have to get up. As she's obviously concerned and worried about other things not pertaining to exercises, that again, I just, and you know, maybe this is part part as like me being a student. And, you know, I I didn't like bill for any of this time, like my supervisor did that. But I think that's one thing that I will never stop advocating for and for the profession is like just being able to count those things in billing, whether you, Tracy, you put it under self-care, you put it under education. I just feel like maybe what would have been more um, beneficial instead of me just having to sweep that under the rug and do exercises was just to sit down and talk to her, console her, have her tell me about what her worries are. Maybe what can we can do to fix it. Even if that had nothing to do with her physical recovery at that point in time, she obviously just wanted somebody to listen, somebody to talk to somebody that cared. And that happened multiple times with patients. And I just felt like so conflicted being like, I have to go, I have to see somebody else. I don't have time or this was what was on the docket for today. And I felt like I couldn't change it. That was something I struggled with a lot.
2: Yeah. And that's for clinicians. That's where burnout's going to happen. You have to experience that same emotion of not, not being able to fulfill your own expectations in the profession because you have all these restrictions put upon you. I think that's where a lot of people burn out really
1: quick. Yeah, add in those anxiety management principles, techniques such as that within the session and, you know, educate on that and how it would improve other things. Capture that in some of that information that you are documenting, because we have to be putting in what it is that we're doing. Right. I understand that we have to we we have to document and I don't mean to say it this way. Um. We, ha- we are restricted based on our reimbursement system. I've said this before. So we have to be making sure that we are working to the top of our license and what it is that we can do and then make appropriate referrals from there. There are individuals within that setting that you're discussing, Devin, that can be focused and pulled in on that. And then our role could be advocating for that client. This was shared during my session. It's affecting their ability to perform X, Y, and Z. I'm making this referral. And then, you know, in those team conferences have that discussion where they need they need um, counseling, however, that agency chooses to provide that counseling could be mm. spiritual care, it could be whatever. But again, capture that information because again, we have evidence-based interventions to utilize to address those symptoms of anxiety and the depression that can improve occupational performance. And now that's my soapbox. So it's one of those where we have to be stating what it is that we can do and continue to advocate for our clients, for our profession, and for ourselves.
4: I couldn't agree more. Now that thank you. See, you're not I'm not you're not learning from us. We're learning from you here. I wish I would have known that going in or just felt like I was confident enough to do that because Right. Kind of when you frame it as like, well, I am providing it. So let me just find where it fits under and document it. Because, you know, if the system won't allow it, we know it fits somewhere. So let's figure out where it fits and put it in there. I think, Brittany, you already went over a lot of the risk factors that we talked about being a female smoking, mild cognitive impairment.
0: I think one, one major
4: risk factor as
0: far as anxiety is, is that worry about stroke recurrence is like, am I, is this going to happen again? And kind of living in that constant state of what if this, or is this going to happen again? Like what's going to happen next time. And I think that's what kind of contributes to those late chronic stages. So in the kind of the later, less acute, less subacute, stages of stroke recovery is like okay is this going to happen again and I think that's a major contributing factor to that post-stroke anxiety and that can be a constant thing I've seen that kind of worry as far as falls also in both stroke patients and non-stroke patients and I I think one thing that we had learned is that you're more at risk for a fall as far as a fall when you're worried about it. I think that was, that Cycle was something of fear. Yes. Yeah. So I think not necessarily stroke recurrence, but falling like the fear of falling. You're at more of a increased risk for falls. And I thought that was one of the major interesting things that I learned. in I think one of our adult classes and then I've used in my family, but that was one of the risk factors for Um, anxiety. Um, And I thought it was also interesting to note that post-stroke anxiety is significantly associated with pre-stroke anxiety. Um, So if you already have anxiety pre-existing before stroke, you are more likely to have that anxiety, but hopefully you've kind of learned some coping strategies. It's not all the time. It's not going to happen all the time, but hopefully with the experience of having the anxiety pre-stroke, you might be able to cope a little bit better. But then again, it's also something still major happening to you. So you're still more if you already have it pre-existing. I thought that was a pretty cool correlation. Um, that way you're, you can kind of be a little bit more aware of it. Like, okay, I've, I've had anxiety like my entire life. I know that this is going to be kind of a normal thing for me, personally, post-stroke.
1: Another point for education, because, and then this is an anecdotal in my experience, oftentimes I'll hear from caregivers and family members, this is how their loved one was before. I have a sinking suspicion it's not the same, it's in addition to what was before. So Mm. oftentimes they just, i found that it's disregarded, that anxiety, if they were an anxious individual prior to their event. So that's Mm. something to really keep in mind as well. And it's not something to let folks sweep under the rug per se, just because they were anxious before.
0: That's a good point. I think big effects.
4: Oh, go ahead, Devin. Go ahead.
0: Well, I was gonna start.
4: (laughs) Sorry, what'd you say? You can finish your point because I think once you finish your point, like we're right up to intervention. So that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was
0: actually going to get into the kind of the effects of, um, having, so the, having post-stroke depression or post-stroke anxiety, it can cause both mental and physical fatigue. I think I've listened to a previous podcast where y'all go over kind of the fatigue and the prevalence of that and what goes on with that, but having, the post-stroke anxiety and post-stroke depression can cause that fatigue. It can kind of be a cycle. It can kind of be very intertwined. So post-stroke sleep disturbances, for example, will cause fatigue and depression can also manifest as sleep disturbances and low energy and fatigability. So I think those are some interesting effects to know of post-stroke depression is that it can cause that tiredness. It can cause that not wanting to participate, the low motivation, which, again, can affect those outcomes. It can also affect your concentration, your ability to multitask, your ability to deal with stressors, which is a big one. And
4: I I think you made a good point about how, what did you say? Um, um, Brain farting, what did you just say? Brendan, what did you just say? The uh, mental fatigue and... Uh, um... Fatigue, good. Okay, I got it. I got it back. That, like, that fatigue, I feel like just gets swept under the rug as it's a behavior. Like it's a behavioral thing. I can't even tell you how many people would just come to be like, oh, so-and-so is like, oh, they're just mad today. Like, oh, they're having a behavior. I'll say behavior instead of other words. But I'm like, it just gets instead of lo- looking at the core of like why what's causing this behavior, it's just, oh, they're the problem. They're having a behavior. I can't work with them today. What have you? When again, points for OT, we see that. We see that it's not just, oh, they're having a behavior. There's a reason behind why they're having that behavior. And that's what needs to be treated. That's what needs to be looked at. I think, also, going into that, I think it's also important to note that
0: some studies have found a biological basis for depression and anxiety and strokes. So I think again that that just adds to the fact that most of the times it's not a behavior; these changes in brain functioning, and brain structure, can cause these it's impacting that exactly. Yeah, I think. Um, go ahead, Doro. No, go. It's fine. Okay. Strokes often, uh, we found that strokes often result in an inflammatory response and can lead to a rise in inflammatory markers. Uh, Research has shown an increase in inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6, and a mild stroke. So these inflammatory markers are seen in other systemic conditions, such as autoimmune diseases. There's also... Whoa! mm -hmm, There's evidence that inflammatory mechanisms can contribute to depression, Um, so... A lot of mild strokes or strokes in general can lead to disconnection of widely distributed networks in the brain and can affect memory and attention. And the decrease in these domains has been associated with fatigue and depression. So it's possible that these emotional deficits seen in mild strokes may directly represent that disconnection in the brain. So I thought it was super interesting that research has actually shown that biological mechanisms in the brain can affect the outcomes of depression and anxiety for post-stroke and it's not just a behavior most of the time so
1: that was Point really to advocate yeah. that's a really good. To
4: advocate yep. mm-hmm. educate advocate see this is why i'm on here because i didn't know any of that <laughs> and now i'm going to save this and put it in my folder so if i one day am working with stroke patients that'll be the first thing i start telling people be like, there you go It's okay, let's talk about this, all of this biological mumbo-jumbo that I understand right now, but I will once I go over it.
0: (laughs) And that's all a part of our learning process as students. I think that's also a good takeaway for students is you're not supposed to know everything. Like this is an education. I definitely didn't know that. (laughs)
4: Absolutely, I'm
0: still learning. I've been
2: in outpatient neuro for over 10 years. I'm learning every day and I wanna learn every day.
1: We have to learn every day because research is coming out every day. Absolutely. And as I say, if I practice like I did when I graduated as an entry level 25 plus years ago now, could you imagine what a disservice I would be doing to my clients and in behalf of our beloved profession? So it's, I mean, when you leave the doors, those hallowed halls, when you leave the doors, your job is to know and with confidence know that you know where to find that information And then take it and run with it and apply it to your care for the environment of your clients, the community, and our profession.
2: Sorry, I just have to say, I really, really love that point that you made about behavior, how Mm -hmm. depression and anxiety can be mistaken as behavior. It's just light bulb moment for me. I see it on a daily basis, but you just put it so good. And yeah, it's just
4: not fair. It's not fair to, to no. put put that on the client or the patient when there's a deeper rooted cause for that. Absolutely, and a
2: lot Definitely. of times, you know, you don't see those. I feel like with when we talk about depression, we still expect somebody to have a sad or lower mood. People don't understand that it might manifest completely, totally different. Yeah. Might they, be feisty. Might yeah. be feisty. They might be just. They might be happy, but fatigued. Mm-hmm. So th- mm-hmm. that's where it becomes so challenging to really figure out is it a behavior? Um, is it a depression you know and that's where it, it's important to pull in other healthcare professionals to come
1: up with a really good team strategy team speak. And well, and I was just saying that that would be an excellent. So Devin we were and, and Brittany, we were just we're were disgruntled about like the billing and all of that stuff. That's a great group activity for individuals who have all had some neurologic event to educate them in a group format around it, around some sort of an activity and that could be some of the education that's provided and then from a continuing ed or from a, an education to say nursing department diet, dietary we could be as clinicians then educating individuals on it's not just a, it's not a behavior it's not just that Mr. Jones doesn't want to do whatever, okay? That that's another opportunity that we could then be educating and enhancing the outcomes of all of our clients.
4: See, and that's why I need more experience on my belt. Sometimes I would tell myself in my, um, my two field works, like I would come in and I was like, I gotta get my advocacy pants on because I'm gonna have to do a lot of talking and I'm gonna have to be confident which I wasn't at the time. And I was like, gotta get your advocacy pants on. Just get out there and start talking. <laughs> oh my Do gosh. Something. I don't love this. this
2: slide. I love this so much. You don't even understand.
4: This is so good. Cause I'm so not one. And I mean, we just talked about it in Brittany in one of our classes, kind of like the dynamics or the interprofessional dynamics we were experiencing in our field works. And a lot of it came up. This is more of like the OT as a practitioner part, but how like some, maybe we as OTs or OT as a profession compared to other professions, like just stay in the back. We don't talk as much. We just are more go with the flow. And at least that's what us students were experiencing on our field work. And I, when I was doing my little discussion post. I was like, no, we cannot do this anymore. I was like, we have, as a profession, we need to stand our ground and maybe we need to like push back. We need to fight back for everyone who's, or all professions who don't see our worth or don't understand what we're doing. And I, we have to, nothing's going to change and no steps and no action steps are going to be taken if we don't stand up for ourselves. And we talk, we, you know, tell the truth about like, No, I actually, I I don't agree like this, this and this like psychosocial issues, psychosocial interventions, bam, bam, bam. I'm like, if we're not speaking up about those things, no other profession is going to cover them. That's we're going to we have to cover them and we got to we have to say something about that. I was that was one of my critiques on myself. Nobody gave this to me, but I was like, I hope one day I am I wear my advocacy pants 24 seven. And not just at one particular moment.
2: I feel like you already do.
4: Yeah, but Mm -hmm. that's when I'm in a safe space, not when I'm in front of people live. Like in person, I feel like I have a harder time advocating and making sense than when I've had time to think about it and put notes on a piece of paper and I have my thoughts all organized.
2: But advocacy comes in all kinds of forms and shapes, so... You're mm-hmm. already wearing those pants.
4: Yeah, I put them on this morning before this recording. <laughs> Good for you. I think that brings us to the topic of today, really, which is interventions. Now, a lot of these, you know, we, we have covered ad an, nauseum a little bit. So the definitely the like the psychoeducation, the education in general especially what you said bringing about like that biological aspect of like what happens when you have a stroke. It's teaching part of the education has to do with like teaching our patients and our clients about the nature of the disease, the nature of a stroke, what's normal, what to expect, and then maybe also educating them on like how we're going to provide care, what is the plan of action moving forward. And even when there are bumps along the way, educating them on like what the bump is we're facing and how we're going to how we're going to get over that bump. It's like including them in every step of the way and not leaving them in the dark. Another thing is maybe we need to do more of like going in there and explaining what's happening instead of just going in there and doing it. I think one big thing that
0: I saw at Tier Memorial Herman is they had for each patient they had a neuropsychologists. I don't know actually if it was for each patient or if just if they were presenting with symptoms, but neuropsychologists were actually a part of the care team that would meet weekly with us. And I thought that was a really big thing for patients to have is someone who's focusing solely on that mental health aspect and how their life is changing and kind of also educating I mean, I think we as occupational therapists can still do that, but I thought that was really cool for them to have a person solely for that when we're also trying to focus on like ADLs, like our sometimes our treatments sometimes aren't long enough <laughs> to be able to get all that stuff in. But I thought that was really cool for them to have as far as holistic care. Yes, Tracy.
1: I was just gonna say the benefits of medication to address... The anxiety and the depression that we're speaking of. I know that this was discussed in a previous podcast, but it's having that neuropsych on board to help to initially stabilize those individuals from from the biochemical side and actually from the pharmacological side, and then they would be more open to other interventions. But having everyone understand that it's okay, that you may need medication for this, and it's because you've had that stroke, or it's because you had brain injury that that that's required at that time. And I think that that is is key. And I couldn't uh, applaud that comment about neuropsych being involved. And then, again, educating the entire team for what we should be seeing with the improvement of whatever meds on board. And if we're not seeing it, then maybe they need to make some changes. And obviously, we're not prescribing. So that's working in but we're giving that feedback, so to go back to what Devin was saying, what's occurring during our sessions is critical. So we need to be advocating and communicating what, because we may be hearing things because of the nature of what we do as occupational therapists is so intimate. They may be telling us things that they're not sharing with other providers. So it's our role to take that information, put on our advocacy pants and do Mm -hmm.
0: that. That's my motto. I think we're we're so good at interrelational skills. Um I think we're we're just we're so good at those like connecting with people most of the time. And to your point, sometimes they'll tell us tell us things because they feel comfortable with us that they won't tell other people things. And I think that's really the communication aspect is a really important thing when you're working interprofessionally with people, because again, they may be closer to the, to the physical therapist. And so if they're telling them that like some of these, um, like some other things and them bringing that to the care team, and then they can kind of put the pieces together of, okay, what's going on. So I think that communication is very, very important not only for mental health, but other things too. Um, And as a requirement,
1: we're talking about all this reimbursement stuff. That's a requirement of the reimbursement is to have that team. So again, occupational warrior, which is my, which is my version of the, uh, (laughs) of the advocacy pants, um, making sure that we're doing that. And then we're documenting that and that we spoke to and why very good stuff.
4: I think another I intervention. Think, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I think what um I mean, Tracy, you said the medication. And I think that goes hand in hand with like behavioral and cognitive interventions. We already mm-hmm. talked a little bit, counseling, problem solving, maybe motivational interviewing, using each of those separately, but then also making sure we're combining them because I don't think one or the other alone makes as much of an impact as having both together. You want to be able to suppress their symptoms enough so that, you know, when you're doing the counseling, when you're doing the problem solving, that's like really sinking in and they're not being affected as much by their anxiety or the depression. And then, you know, once we start to see improvements and the recovery process is improving and it's going well, maybe we wean them off on medication or you keep them on it, but that allows them to. Remember what we talked about in counseling. Remember the problem-solving skills we talked about or the techniques we talked about. Which enables them to perform their occupations. Right. Mm-hmm. It goes hand in hand, folks. That's what we're saying. It goes hand in hand. So I think uh, another intervention um would be that peer
0: support or finding community problem solving. I think um, one of those risk factors is social isolation. So really trying to help them navigate the changes in relationships, but also how, who you're going to have as a friend, who's going to help support you, um, who you're not seeing every day. I think having that kind of, that community support or peer support will also be a really big help, like helping with community mobility I think that's also within our scope of practice is helping with that community mobility, helping them figure out ways to get around, figure out ways to get places can really help in treating that anxiety or depression because that's a really big factor is not being socially isolated.
4: And I think that, I mean, that's a that's something that we can do. We can talk about in terms of like when you leave here, and I'll like develop that peer support and find community outside, like when they leave us, leave our care, and also like Tracy said, like we could we could um, develop that and facilitate that while they're still in treatment. Do those groups? Maybe if you're doing interventions in a common place with other people. Maybe gather them all around and talk about it while, you know, they're doing their arm exercises or their warm ups or whatever. Maybe have that on standby as part, like have your little whatever you're going to say and like, d- like facilitate that conversation. It's a group within doing what is, you know, mandatory as part of treatment.
0: I think many different formats for these interventions can be. I mean, you can do an individual format one-on-one. It just, it really depends on kind of the person. So getting to know your client, your patient, and kind of what works best for them. So would it be an individual format, a group format for if they're lacking some social support, maybe do a group format instead of just individual. You can also do telehealth for accessibility. So A little bit of a tangent here, but one of my my research project is on cognitive behavioral therapy and its effectiveness for anxiety. And one of the things that we go over is the different delivery methods for cognitive behavioral therapy. And they are these three is the individual one-on-one, the group, or the internet-based or telehealth, which the telehealth, I think, can really improve that accessibility to people who may live in rural areas. Who won't be able to drive? Who aren't to the driving yet? That kind of telehealth, um, having access to counseling services over telehealth. I think also knowing as clinicians, knowing that there are options for that would be really helpful in treating. Because not not every patient's going to be the same. So knowing that there are different forms and not just one. N- nothing's a one size fits all. Everyone is going to be unique in their own way. So finding what intervention works best, what format of intervention works best for your patient specifically. And that's where we kind of get into the holistic care of that person individually and working, looking at them as an individual and not one big
4: diagnosis. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that leads us into our next point of that in some way, shape or form, the psychosocial interventions can be used in all settings. They can be used in any setting, acute care, skilled nurse facility, home health, the community setting. There there are tons of ways to incorporate these interventions that we've talked about into any setting that we're working in, which I, I mean, that's the beauty of it. I think it's just someone taking the time. Someone who's educated themselves and is ready to pass on that education to our patients, taking the time, caring enough to to do those things. And I and so for um, what we have under the results is that like you know we're looking at these articles and the results based on research qualifications are inconclusive. They're, oh, it worked this time, but it not didn't. These didn't work in the other the other article, so they're classified as this statistically non not significant. And I just had this conversation with Michelle, who is part of our research team at DeUville, along with Tracy. Just because research maybe says it's statistically not significant, does that mean you don't do it? Does that mean you just stop providing care? No. It doesn't because I'm and that's where I'm just like an advocacy pant moment. I'm not going to wait for research to tell me how and when I should treat a patient. Like it, I feel like that could just be, you know, research you're doing on your own, like trial, run it, test it. Is this working for the patient? No, switch it up, do something else, figure out what works and what doesn't work. If you're that savvy and you want to document this stuff and then put it in research, We'd love to see it. But if the research isn't there, because I know this is an evidence-based podcast, but for some of these topics, some like maybe that if the evidence isn't, isn't there or it's not supporting what you're trying to do, that doesn't mean you don't do it. Maybe that means you test it, you trial it, you figure it out, see what works for the patient. If it does for that patient, awesome. If it doesn't, look elsewhere look for something else that might work but I thought that was awesome when I had that conversation with Michelle because so many there are so many things that go into doing research and producing research and for and to have it be ethical that I'm like I don't know if all the things we would want to cover in research are ever going to get researched because they don't they're not ethically sound Tracy I, I
1: see you itching I know I'm itching. Let's just talk about the three-legged stool of evidence-based practice. So when you think about evidence-based practice, it's not just what the study says. It's that's one third of the of the equation. It's what the study says. It's what your clinical reasoning and judgment is bringing to the scenario, and it's the client. Yeah. So there are three things involved with evidence-based practice. It's not just the evidence because Devin, I couldn't a- agree with you more just because they it could be any intervention it was applied to one specific diagnosis subset that doesn't mean it wouldn't work to a similar diagnosis subset that's pre, that's presenting with the like symptoms right so again it's a it's a three three legged stool so it's not just what the research says
4: mm. I agree because we have what five or five to seven articles that we're citing here. And, and, and that was after like tons and tons of hours of research. And this is a very important topic. And I'm just like, so if we had found no research, does that mean that psychosocial interventions are important or that these things aren't happening and we should just, again, sweep them under the rug? No, if, if you're seeing that with your patient, and if they're feeling that and they're expressing that to you, that should be what's in the forefront of your mind and not like necessarily what the research is saying. That doesn't mean it's not happening. That doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah, it comes down to their
0: work.
1: Comes down to it's it affecting their ability to perform? If occupational performance is affected, it's within our scope of practice. I mean, we may not be skilled to to address it. We should refer then at that point, because obviously every clinician has their ability. I mean, we can't be going outside of that. I mean, that's um, unethical to Mm -hmm. be practicing and doing things that you do not have um, it in your scope or you do not have competence in.
4: Mm -hmm. And where the research would help, which is why I advocate for all OTs to get into research, is because that helps with proving why we should be there if there's evidence to back it up that helps with getting ot's foot in the door which we already know we belong there but we have to there has to be evidence that we should be there if it's not if ot is not already in that area or if ot is not currently doing psychosocial interventions that are you bill for or something like that so not to say that research isn't important because that's i think that's a that's a huge part of where it is important.
0: I think a big takeaway is that there needs to be more research,
4: especially in mental health.
0: Yeah. I think one thing that we also found lacking was research for mental health on hospital staff and different clinicians. Yeah, for OTs, yeah, for, OTs uh, for nurses, for like, we didn't find as much,
4: research,
0: if any, research on the mental health of people working in these settings. Um, So I thought that would be an also a very interesting point of research for people to do in the future.
4: Kind of that. I think that brings it back to like what you were saying, Doro, about burnout. There's really there's no research out there that helps with, you know, OTs, any other healthcare staff that are helping these patients day in and day out. There's there's no nothing out there, no evidence, no research on what. OTs or healthcare professionals can do to reduce that burnout or steps in how to go about helping their patients in this way that they can still do at the end of the day without stretching themselves Uh, too thin. Yeah. Without burning out. Yeah.
2: Makes subtle sense. Yeah.
4: And so how as OTs can we promote the integration of psychosocial interventions right now? Again, we talked about this a little bit, but these articles and that we looked at, I mean, there is research out there. So use that. Try to incorporate some of them into your daily practice with your patients. Trial them out with your patients and with your caregivers and see what works. If it works, stick with that. And if it doesn't, keep researching. Keep looking for stuff that's out there because there it, it's out there. And then spread awareness. Kind of like this is what this podcast is all about, is spreading awareness, being able to educate healthcare providers, Patients, caregivers, everybody under the sun who's affected by stroke or who works with patients who are experiencing a stroke is spreading awareness for sure. And then advocacy, our favorite thing to do as OTs. (laughs) I was going to say also
1: advocate as us as OTs, but for the care partners, advocacy as well. So if they're seeing things in their loved ones, They need to be advocating and not, not, not taking that. It's just part of it. And as we've been saying, sweeping it under the rug.
4: Do not back down because there's a way to do it. Advocating for quality of care, not quantity of care. Going back to that, we want to, we're trying to go back to quality, quality of care, not how many minutes did I get in? If you need more than 45 minutes, you should be able to do that. If they don't need more than 45 minutes, shouldn't have to stay there for 45 minutes. Quality, what does that patient need in the moment? If it's 30 minutes, great. If it's an hour and a half, that should be what we're able to do. Any last minute thoughts? That was a lot.
2: I can't tell if Brittany's about to say something or not.
0: <laughs> oh, no, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> oh,
2: no, I was just gonna say, wow, wow wow (laughs) i am so proud and so grateful that we had the opportunity to have you on this podcast today i mean the information that you shared was just um incredible and so valuable and truly student-led
0: today
1: yeah excellent organization very woohoo
0: so good well it was so fun to be here and it was so interesting researching on this topic Yeah, we
4: appreciate being here.
0: Yeah, I've always had such an interest in um, the mental health side of OT, and being able to apply that to strokes was a very, very cool thing to see. And just being more aware of how it presents in clients and what we can do for it. So this was fun.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I learned something new today, and I did the research. (laughs) And I still learn something new.
2: I love it. You will always learn something new every day. And if you don't, challenge yourself to find something.
4: Right. Oh, yeah.
1: A long, wonderful, bountiful career ahead of both of you. Yes. So just keep learning. So good.
2: (laughs) I feel (laughs) like we just need to keep going now. It's just... (laughs)
4: so rich <laughs> there are literally so many tangents we have could have gotten into and for so much longer mm-hmm. <laughs> i know what it's like i got gotcha. you
1: <laughs> yeah it's fun Tracy when you get knows. a bunch of passionate people
4: yeah crazy knows i just be going i used to go off in her class about things and i was just like i'll just stop talking because i don't have time we don't have time for all of this information we don't have time for my bench session right now
2: I, I so really, I mean, that's how I'm during a podcast. I'm muting myself just to remind myself just keep going. Just don't say anything. Let it go. Let it flow. It's all good. Let it flow. Because I would go on a tangent 24 7.
4: Yep. Passionate people get
1: in certain places because they're passionate, Doro. Very true. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, again, Very thank good. you so much this was excellent awesome
0: thank you for having you probably
2: will never hear me say this again but this was almost i almost enjoyed this more than talking about the brain (laughs) and i love talking about the brain i mean that's all i talk about usually but this was so
4: good yes 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 see Brittany we worried look at our anxiety was for nothing we worried for nothing <laughs> what anxiety we were flipping out before we came on this podcast I was like oh my gosh this is gonna be a travesty I was like we have too much on this outline we're, we're gonna get lost we're not gonna be able to know what we're doing we're you know, not gonna be like, able to speak it's gonna be like
0: two or three hours long but like this will be a def- definitely an interesting conversation we had so much information on here
1: information packed i'll give you guys full disclosure i went on and saw the four screens and i went uh yeah. oh where's dad cuz i didn't get a text until it was until until after doro hit record and i got a text from debbie make sure we hit record i'm like done we're good <laughs> we're good
0: oh <laughs> uh, could you imagine if we just went through that whole discussion and it wasn't recording
1: no, and it's still recording. That's okay. because Devil, devil do her magic. Um, yeah. I bet probably, yeah, it's, it's
2: I too. still have it running. I didn't want to yeah, stop still it. Running. I don't yeah. want to mess up. Yeah, no, no, that would no, be
4: no. So bad. I wouldn't have been able to repeat what I said. I'd been like, I don't remember what I said. It's not going to be a good <laughs> well, This is our opportunity to say hi to Deb then for when she edits it
0: later. That's
2: right. <laughs> there, there you go. Hi, <laughs> we missed you.
4: Yeah. You're here in spirit. Yeah, you're our fifth little square.
1: <laughs> excellent. Doro, this was excellent. Thank you so much for hosting.
4: Yes. I'm extremely
1: excited to again have participated in a, in the second year of Noggins and Neuros, Neuros Neurons, and uh, Duval University community practice students. So thank you, Devin and Brittany. Exceptional, exceptional
0: thank time you. spent today.
2: Thank you excellent yes i applaud you and thank you that was fantastic
0: I, I i just love this format like being able to discuss things with people like this it's i love this idea i love this podcast it's awesome very good resource too Yay. excellent
3: thank you so much for listening to this episode We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.